Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who really asks the hard questions, such as why is there no iPhone 9? But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today, I'm in Washington, D.C. again, and I'm here in the studio with a legendary journalist, Sally Quinn, the author of Finding Magic, a spiritual memoir, which is her latest tome. Sally is a former style writer for The Washington Post and a religion columnist there, and she ran a website, too. In her new book, she talks about the search for spiritual meaning in life, as well as her marriage to Washington Post editor Ben Bradley, and her second life at the center of D.C.'s social world. She also explains how she likes to put hexes on her enemies, which we're going to talk about, which I fully support. So I'm going to tread very carefully in interview, although I doubt she will hex me. Sally, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. For coming. I will talk about the hexing situation, which, again, I'm fully behind. Um, but let's talk about you a little bit, because you had such a long career in journalism and sort of seen the changes and actually been very amenable to a lot of the changes, especially with online. Let's talk about your background. You started where? Like, I'm going to well, go back. Like, I started at the Washington Post almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was sort of an accident because um, I was sort of floundering around. I didn't have a job. And uh, I was almost 29 years old. Um, I was um, an old maid, is mm-hmm. what we called it in those days, a yeah. spinster. And uh, I had majored in theater at Smith College. And um, I'd had all these different jobs. And I, suddenly I decided to, I would go back to the theater. And so I went and tried out for this play mm-hmm. called uh, Joseph Heller's play, We Bombed in New Haven. I tried out for the lead. Meanwhile, I had met Ben Bradley when I had been hired by the editor of the editorial page, Phil mm-hmm. Jalin, for to be his secretary. Mm-hmm. And he had taken me in to meet Ben, and I was just, of course, immediately dazzled by mm-hmm. the sun god. He was dazzling. You know? <laughs> and and uh, the next day, Phil Jalin fired me because he said I was too overqualified. I couldn't type and I couldn't file. No, that sounds like a, it was a, that was <laughs> right. a congressional problem that years a scandal. But then a couple years later, Ben, I got a call one day, and I had just tried out for the play. And Ben called me and said, I'm looking for somebody to cover parties because at one point I had been the social secretary for the Algerian ambassador. Mm -hmm. And would you like to come and and interview me? So I said yes. And as I was about to leave, um, I got a call from the director of the play saying, congratulations, you've gotten the part. Oh, wow. Wow. And I said, this is great. It's wonderful. And I but still, I went down to meet with Ben and Mm -hmm. thinking that nothing would come of it. And Mm -hmm. we had this fantastic conversation. And I was, we were very playful with each other. I mean, mm-hmm. he was 20 years my senior and he mm-hmm. was the editor of the Washington Post and I was this kid. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of, we were sparring with each other and we had this really sort of connection. And he seemed to like that. And at the end of the interview, he said, can you show me something you've written? And I said, well, I've never written anything. And he said, well, <laughs> nobody's perfect. <laughs> You're hired. And the next day I went out and started covering p- parties. parties. Right. And that, of course, if you cover parties in Washington, it's not really a social yep. beat. It's a political beat mm-hmm. because um, all of the people that you're covering are people who are in the administration, the Congress, the diplomatic right. corps, the military. And I found that um, I never went out to a party before. I hit the national desk and the foreign desk and said, what do you need to know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I would break stories because I get people to say things over a cocktail that they wouldn't right. say you know, in it's an so interview. It's so odd. The first, this season of House of Cards, they hire yes. someone who is a party reporter who yeah. can get anyone to say anything after 8 o'clock with a drink in after their hand. After 8 o'clock with a drink in their yeah. hand. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, people used to come. And, you know, so then I would have reporters come to me and say, are you going to this party tonight? Henry Kissinger's going to be there. Would you make sure that you ask him such and such and you know and right so then I started doing political profiles and ended up being more of a political reporter right but you did you know I don't know if you realize this but I started off covering parties too at the Washington Post yes oh yeah oh yeah Kara Swisher was at parties all the time and I was I it was a really great way to learn how to be a reporter well not only that it's really hard yeah yeah and yeah. the other thing is that you're you're at night and the deadline, you know, you have to, you have to most call of the time in. you had to call the story in. Yep. So you have to dictate the story. You don't get to sit down and write it and you're on deadline. Mm-hmm. So it's fantastic training. Right. Absolutely. That's I mean, what I did. Elizabeth Buemiller, who's mm-hmm. now the, um, bureau, the chief. bureau chief of the New York Times, 
uh, when I went to, to New York to be the CBS Morning News anchor, the first mm-hmm. network woman anchor in mm-hmm. America, um, they said, you can't go unless you find a replacement. So I went up to New York to the Columbia Journalism School, and I interviewed all these journalists, and Elizabeth was the star. Mm-hmm. So I hired her and brought her back to Washington cover to cover parties. Yeah. And she told me the other day, she said, all my friends were saying, I can't believe you're going to, you know, you went to Columbia Journalism School, right. you're going to cover parties. And she said, you know, it was the best training I could Same possibly Same thing. Get. I went to Columbia Journalism School. Yeah. I did. It was yeah. really, I never put down put it down because it really gave me a sense of how mm-hmm. to be a reporter. So I want to talk about that because you were well known. I, I, I get that we share it a lot because people think I'm mean and like not as nice as I should be. I don't be. think you're mean. I don't either. Uh, Sally, of course <laughs> I'm not. They're all big babies. But, but talk about that idea of reporting because I want to get into, because you did move into digital uh, right. later. Um, yeah. But what is what is journalism now to you? Like, because what what does it take to be a great journalist? Because what you're talking about are the same things. I think everyone want, says, "Oh, you're so digital. You're this. You're that." And I'm like, it's the same qualities of a journalist. It has not changed whatsoever. I it's t- just the tools. I completely agree with you. And on some level, um, what we're doing today, because um, it used to be that you'd have a deadline of seven thirty mm-hmm. at night, right. And then a later for the later edition, ten thirty, mm-hmm. eleven, something like that. And then you were sort of off for the rest of the time. And right. now it's every minute, you know, because you write a story, it goes up immediately. And then you get reaction and have to react and you, to and it. And you have to react to it. But the other thing is you've got to get it right. Mm-hmm. You've got to get it right quickly. You don't have time for all the editing mm-hmm. that we used to, you know, be subjected to. Mm-hmm. And so going back to covering parties, it's kind of like that, where you're going out, you're getting quotes from all these high-powered people, and then you've got to call it in, and it goes right into the paper. Right. So, um, but, you know, I, certainly at the Washington Post and the New York Times, and those are the two newspapers I have experience with. I've Mm -hmm. never worked for the Times, but half my friends are there. But I I don't, I I think, if anything, the quality of journalism has gotten better. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, I think I've I've just been amazed at how fantastically well the Post and the Times have done in Mm -hmm. this last, you know, over this last election and through Mm -hmm. the beginning of this administration. Uh, the accuracy. And of course, everybody now is so aware that you have got to, I mean, Ben's motto was get it first, but get it right. Mm-hmm. And 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 so there's this kind of interesting, friendly competition between the Post and the Times, mm-hmm. where I'm, obviously they want to get it first, mm-hmm. but we have to get it right. But the other thing is that people are, it's like we're all in this together mm-hmm. because we're all enemies of the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, it's, it's up to all of us to get it, get right. the story. And so right. there's, you know, people back and forth tweeting each other's stories from both papers and congratulating each other. Not just the papers, other. but other outlets, too. And other outlets, right. too, yeah, right. and other news organizations, right. um, of where it's just really important to all of us that that all of us do everyone does a good job mm-hmm. and when you have a situation that happened recently with CNN mm-hmm. it's like a knife in your heart because right. you think oh don't make it don't mess up don't mess up yeah. no because then there's there goes the sort of dishonest media and the enemies of the people and right. and so we've got to get it right and that's right. why I think the level of reporting now is better than it's ever been. So you were, let's talk about when you were a political reporter. What was, what was it like then? What was the, you, you, you used to set the standard for people's uh, reputations and and what you said about them and how you said it. Um, Can you talk about that? Because again, I don't think it's that different, but what was, how did you look at political coverage? Well, I mean, one of the things that my political coverage, well, I did two things. One was I did a lot of profiles. Right. And um, and the profiles were, I mean, when you talk about people saying that I was mean, mm-hmm. um, I would go out and I'd interview somebody and then I would write what they said. Right. They don't like that. Yeah. They didn't like that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you yep. know, uh, the greatest compliment anyone paid to me was Henry Kissinger when he said, Maxine Cheshire, who was our gossip columnist, makes you want to commit murder and Sally makes you want to commit suicide. <laughs> um, but I mean, I nobody ever questioned my the fact that I'd ever misquoted them. I mean, right. I just simply wrote what they said. Right. And, but people did say things to me that mm-hmm. they were later sorry for. Yeah. Um, so the profiles were one thing. And, and I also thought that that was a good way to understand the people who were actually running the country. Right. And then I would cover events, like I would cover conventions and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I would go and I would sort of walk around and I, I would sort of write about the big picture, what was going on, what, what you know, the sort of zeitgeist, right? what what people were feeling, what were thinking, what, what they were saying. And, and, um, and, and in Washington, I would do these overall 
I don't know whether you call them sociological... Tone poems. Whatever, yeah. yeah. But yeah. sort of sociological study of what's going on in Washington now. I'm thinking of doing another one now about the atmosphere in Washington yeah. in the Trump administration mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of trying to analyze how things have changed. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in a lot of ways, when I was looking over some of your old stuff, it's actually hard to find online a lot of the old, the great old Post stuff when they had that, that sear, the, yeah. know, because it's all in... They're just not digitized. No. A lot of it's not digitized. Yeah. But I found a bunch of it. And it does read, it's interesting because I think you have a quality of a blogger. I do. Like, you know what I mean? Like fast and quick and sharp. And Well, I write very quickly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's true. I you know, I think a lot of the Post writers had that back in mm-hmm. that era. They mm-hmm. were sort of heralding in what was coming. It was mm-hmm. a little New York Magazine was doing that. There was a bunch of, there was a bunch of journalism that sort of started to shift to a very uh, muscular vis. Uh, Visceral well, you know, kind of writing. Ben started the style section about mm-hmm. two yep. uh, months before I came to work there, so he had totally um, re- redesigned the whole thing. It used to be for and about women, and right. it was that there were all Cooking, these society yes. reporters, and it was all about teas and you know parties right. and the great hostesses and this sort of thing, and and it was very genteel, mm-hmm. but really boring and mm-hmm. flat. And Ben just said, you know, we're going to make this we can't do this anymore as right and so he changed it so half the people there were men and half were women and he said you know let's get the real story here Mm -hmm. let's just and and he had he hired somebody to cover um woodstock you Mm -hmm. know i mean Mm -hmm. he had hippie reporters and Mm -hmm. god knows people were smoking dope yeah yeah (laughs) i mean yeah the quote hippie reporters smoking dope outside the new you know and um, so the first day I was there, they, I showed me a desk, and I was seated next to Phil Casey, who mm-hmm. was an old, gruff, yeah. gnarled city reporter who'd been covering police for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But he was a brilliant report, a writer, mm-hmm. great writer. And Ben had moved Phil Casey into the women's section mm-hmm. as one of the first style reporters. Of course, mm-hmm. everyone was horrified and shocked right. and were, you know, fainting and... Um, so I sat down next to Phil, and you know, I was I had I was wearing white gloves at the time. Oh no! <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> ladies wore white gloves. I wore a white glove to my interview with Ben. Yeah. I mean, not when I was typing, yeah. but and so Phil said to me, "Listen, kid, I just got one bit of advice for you." Yeah, and he said, um, "You know, you have to cover parties the same way you would cover the police, yeah. the way that we would cover crime. Mm-hmm. Just remember one thing." There's always a victim and there's always a perp. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that works right now. It works to this and day. And it works to this works day. Works to this day. And then Dorothy McCardle, who was another women's reporter, but who had covered the State Department. She was the first woman mm-hmm. who'd ever ta- covered the State Department. Mm-hmm. And she was fantastic. And she took me to my first party and we walked in and Dorothy, Dorothy turned to me and she was tiny, little white-haired old lady. Mm-hmm. I mean, and she turned to me and she said... I just have one piece of advice. I love for you. all these one piece of yes, advice. Yes, one piece of advice. And she said, always have a drink first before ah. you drink. <laughs> so she would head over to the bar and she would order her Dubonnet on the rocks Dubonnet. and she would knock it back and then she would, she would hit go the room. for it. Right. That's fantastic. So you did that for a long time and got a, a huge reputation. In the meantime, you started seeing Ben. Right. Correct. And, and can you just go through that really quick? Because I want to get you to CBS and what you were doing then later. Yeah. Well, um, Ben. And I had we had been at the paper for four years. I was living with Warren Hogue then, mm-hmm. uh, who was a New York Times reporter. Mm-hmm. And um, Ben was married and had um, children and stepchildren and all that. And I just was dazzled by him. But you know, he was twenty years older and he was married. And he was the editor of the paper, mm-hmm. and um, so I just never thought about anything. And then we on the we were assigned to cover the convention in Miami. Mm-hmm. I was uh, at Nixon. And the Washington Post travel section had seated me next to Ben. Mm-hmm. We, of course, we all flew coach. Right. And so we were just accidentally seated next to each other um, on the plane. Mm-hmm. And it was a very turbulent flight. Oh, and no. I was sort of grabbing onto him and grabbing onto his thigh. And I mm-hmm. mean, I'm not, a, I'm a terrible flyer. Mm-hmm. But we were talking the whole time. And by the time we landed in Miami, I was in love with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just totally in love with him. And he later admitted that he had fallen in love with me on that flight, too. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to join him for dinner that night. Mm-hmm. And um, I said yes. And 
I uh, went back to the hotel and he called and said, I'm really sorry, but the managing editor has arranged for us to take some other, some reporters out to dinner. You can join us. And I did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were at yeah. the opposite end of the table. And then, then I was coming out of the convention another night and I was hailing a cab and I heard a voice, a nah. rough voice say, yeah. taxi. Yeah. I looked over, it was Ben. And he said, oh, do you want to get a drink? And I said, yes. So we headed off to the Fountain Blow Hotel and just as we got there, a bunch of our reporters said, Benji, Sal, we're all going into the Flamingo Room. Come with us. And we both kind of looked at each other and said, uh, no, thanks. We're going to. Yeah. And so nothing happened. And, of course, this is in the middle of Watergate. Right. But I, at this point, was in love with him. And I wrote him a couple of little anonymous love which notes. Which is in this book. You talk about Which is him. in the book. Yeah. And actually, I wouldn't have put it in the book except that Ben put it in his book. Oh, he stole it from you, the story? Well, when he wrote his book and I, when I went over the manuscript, I I cut it out. Right. But he, sneaky devil, right. put it back in without right. telling me. Uh-huh. So I was outed. Uh, but he never figured out who had sent the notes. Mm-hmm. But I thought, how could he be that thick? You mm-hmm. know, but mm-hmm. but it was kind of like alluding to little interludes we've mm-hmm. had in the newsroom or mm-hmm. conversations. Um, and so at one point, I went to Paul Richard, my my best friend in the newsroom, who was the art critic. Art critic, yeah. And I said to Paul... Um, who was my confidant, I said, you know, I have to tell you I'm in love with Ben Bradley, Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do about it, you know. And I think he likes me, but I don't know. And, you know, at this point, the Nixon people are following Ben and Woodward and Bernstein, and they have to go outside on the lawn of Ben's Mm -hmm. house because they think the house is bugged. And, you know, it was, they, I mean, they would have done anything to destroy the paper. Mm -hmm. And Paul said... You just can't do anything about this. You cannot make any advances. You can't do anything. And uh, I, he looked at me and he said, you have to put your country first. <laughs> now, I know it sounds ridiculous at this point, but he was, it was the, well, I'm an army brat. You know, it's yeah, the one thing right. that he could have said to me that, right. that made a difference. And so when CBS came and offered me the job to be the first network anchor woman mm-hmm. in America on the CBS Morning News, I took the job, even right. though I didn't want the job. I didn't want to go on television. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I loved my job at the Post, but I just felt I needed to get away from Ben because right. it was clearly right, not headed. happening and I couldn't stand it. It was too painful. So mm-hmm. I quit the Post, mm-hmm. moved up to New York. Ben tried to talk me out of going and moved in with my boyfriend. And I came back to Washington for a farewell party, and I asked Ben to take me to lunch. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, chicken salad at the Madison Hotel, this huge... I know that chicken salad. ...glutinous mass of... <laughs> and I was had rehearsed my speech for a whole week, and I said, I just want you to know that the reason I'm leaving is because I'm in love with you. Oh, wow. And this I have like to, a movie. And I have to... I just can't... I can't be around you anymore. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't believe you're saying this because I'm in love with you too. Oh my and I God. have been for the last year. Right. So we agreed to meet that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we were going to meet at 730 at my apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and about five o'clock, he came up to me in the newsroom with this harried look on his face. And he said, you know, Woodward and Bernstein have just come in with this big story. Can we make it? How about eight? Mm-hmm. And I said, how about never? <laughs> <laughs> And he said, I'm glad you said that because like, <laughs> it worked out well for them. He said, I'll be there at 730. Yeah. And he was. And yeah. that was the beginning of our relationship. And um, he left his home uh, several weeks later uh-huh. and moved into a hotel. And But we couldn't come out of the... Um, but you had left, then you left the post anyway. I had or, already quit. Yeah, I had moved to quit. New York. And I, so, and I was going to, you know, I was going to start the... The show on August the first or whatever the and so we we had to keep it quiet at least through the mm-hmm. the beginning of this right um, and so um, we did but we were meeting you know secretly in places like Ohio and mm-hmm. you know um, and then it's sort of like the middle of September which is this time of year we decided that it would. Um, that you know the gossip was crazy. Right. You know, yeah. People were Ben moved out and it must people be somebody else and you know, and uh, and so we did come out and and by that time I had started CBS. It was a total disaster. Yeah, it was hated everything about. It. I later wrote a book about it. Yeah, you did. It's one the greatest nightmare of my life. 
And I just missed being a journalist. Yeah. I mean, you know, the news. I was a news reader. And right. It was ridiculous. Right. And you had to get up at one o'clock in the morning to right. quote write the show. Right. And, and you got eviscerated. You yeah. Know. And I got killed. Yeah. And I was terrible. Yeah. You know. I didn't so, know what I was doing. I'd never been so on TV you, before. So you did that and then came back mm-hmm. to Washington and and did various writings. And then I came back and went back to work for the Post mm-hmm. and um, and stayed at the Post until. Um, well, I stayed at the post until Quinn, my son, was born. And right. He had a heart defect and open heart surgery, and he was sick, really, for about the first 16 years of his life. And mm-hmm. I had taken a leave of absence to have a baby, but never went back to work full time after and, that. But did writing. So we're gonna, when we get back, we're going to talk about how you got into the religion area, because we worked on a website and other things, and then it led to this book. Right. We're here with Sally Quinn, the legendary Washington Post journalist and other other things she's written. Um, she has a new book out called Finding Magic, a Spiritual Memoir. And we're going to talk about how she got to doing this book. We just talked about her her history as a reporter and falling in love with Ben Bradley, who was also legendary editor of the Washington Post. You started writing a bunch of things and your son was ill and you had to tend to him. How did you get into the religious area? Because you you started writing about religion and then started a website, correct? Why don't you go yeah, through but that it was, really quickly? It, well, first of all, I was an atheist from the time I was four. Atheist, full atheist, not full, agnostic. Oh no, totally atheist. No God. No God. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was in the military and fought in World War II in Germany, and mm-hmm. he liberated Dachau. Yeah. And he had a staff photographer take all these photographs. Right. And he made scrapbooks out of them and hid them in the library of our house in mm-hmm. Washington. And uh, when he came back from the war, and I found them, and I was just horrified. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, I admitted to my father, and of course, we didn't have TV in those days, and I was too young to understand. He explained about the Nazis to me, and I said, Daddy, did God know about this? And he said, yes. And I said, well, how how could he let this happen? And he said, you know, God works in mysterious ways. We just don't understand this. And I was devastated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went upstairs and I cried all night long because I had said my prayers every night. You know, God bless mommy and daddy and mm-hmm. everybody. And I thought all those little Jewish children were saying the same prayers, and so were their parents. And then they got and, killed. And then they got killed. And mm-hmm. so, if Murdered. God didn't protect them, why should I think He would protect me? Therefore, there had to be no God. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I was. I mean, I didn't even know what being an atheist was. I never admitted to anybody that I didn't believe in God until mm-hmm. I learned the word atheist when I was eight, uh, thirteen, mm-hmm. and I thought. Oh, I'm not the only one. There's a word for what it is that I am. And so I was an atheist for all of those years. And and at some point, you know, a really angry atheist. Mm -hmm. Uh, The word agnostic means nothing to me because agnostic is a person who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody knows. My favorite bumper sticker is, I don't know and you don't either. Mm-hmm. The post, I mean, the Pope is an agnostic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. So we're all agnostic. So. Um, so I was an atheist, and until I, um, I was having lunch with John Meacham, um, mm-hmm. who was the editor, at editor of Newsweek, and who's a fantastic writer, he wrote a book historian, on Andrew Jackson. Um, yeah, uh, the the now famous book yeah. on Andrew Jackson. Uh, and Meacham um, is a practicing Christian and a religion scholar, and he said to me, "You're not an atheist," and I said, "Yes, I am." He said, "No, you're not." And he said, "Well, listen, you know, you need to read a lot about religion." He gave me a list of books on the back of an envelope. Mm-hmm. Said, "Go read these books, and then if you still think you're an atheist, fine, but at least you'll know what you're talking about because mm-hmm. you didn't know anything." Mm-hmm. So I read the books, and I, you know, I was thinking about religion, but it was still. I mean, the interesting thing was that I was an angry atheist, but as as Meacham said, you know, that's an, you're not a negative person. That's a negative word. Mm-hmm. It means you're against something. It right. means you're, you know, you deny the existence of God. How can you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know that. Um, so I started thinking about that. And then I became interested in the subject because just as a journalist, I sort of backed into it because... I realized how important religion, religion most important subject is yeah. and in our national politics and foreign mm-hmm. policy mm-hmm. it's huge I right. mean look at yes. ISIS you know I mean you can and and what goes the religious on right, in, I mean, yeah. religious right the evangelicals and I couldn't get the post interested in covering religion and so I had lunch with Don Graham who was the publisher of the post uh, and I said, you know, we're just not covering the story. There's mm-hmm. this huge story out there, and we're not getting right, it. Right, And they and, had that famous story, I remember, that they got in trouble with calling people stupid. Or It was 
There was a story at the Post did that was very dismissive of evangelicals. That was yeah. Well, you know, it was that, it was typical. It was hmm. sort of ham handed the way they. Yeah, it. I mean, the people just there, there were just not a lot of understanding. Yeah, they were mostly secular people at the Post. Well, of course there are. Right. I mean, most journalists are secular mm-hmm. on some level. I mm-hmm. mean, although I've come to find out that they're not as secular as people think. Mm-hmm. Um, so Don said, well, why don't you start a religion website? Mm-hmm. And this is 11 years ago. Right. This was in the dark ages. Right, right. Um, and I said, Don, you know, I don't know anything about religion. I don't even know anything about the Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, I can barely do email. And mm-hmm. he said, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll get my trusty friend John Meacham mm-hmm. and, to, help you. Uh, to help me do it. And mm-hmm. I started the, you know, in those days, Kara, I mean, the the Washington Post website was, was not even in Washington. No, it was it wasn't in Arlington, Arlington for in this union building. Yeah. yeah, and um, so I started going over there, and it was like a whole. I was like in another country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, everybody wore jeans. Um, right. There were concrete floors. There were ping pong tables. There was free coffee and bagels, and and you it, you could do. Well, any, I must it compliment was, you for going over there because well, nobody the, else did. I know it was the Wild West. I right. mean, you and you could do any. I went yeah. over and I said, I want. I started a religion website. They said, yay, why not? So, you yeah. know, suddenly I had a producer and an editor mm-hmm. and a th- this and that, and we put it I'm up. I'm curious why you didn't, because most journals then just wrote about religion in the paper, but didn't want to do the online. What what attracted you in the online sense is that you could reach more well, people? Well, because it was exciting. Yeah. I'd never done anything like that before. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, I, you know, I was bored. Right. I, I mean, I... I, I'm a big believer in change mm-hmm. and, and moving on and mm-hmm. doing new things and trying out new things. And so this was really exciting right. for me. And and to be able to do whatever we wanted to do, we had total freedom. Nobody right. at the Post told us what to do. Right. And, you know, it was in the Wild West. We right. could do anything we wanted. Right. And suddenly we had advertisers and mm-hmm. John, you know, and I went to New York and had my picture taken with John. And suddenly within a month, there we were up on the site right. and... Um, uh, what I wanted to do was to have – and John said he had a full-time right. job, so he right. couldn't do it. I ran the website, but mm-hmm. I hired this wonderful editor mm-hmm. um, who was a religion editor who who totally got what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. I, what I wanted to do was have a religion panel, right. and then um, and then people could uh, write in questions. Or we'd have a question of the week, and then the right. panel would answer it. And I had to happen to know four religious people. One of them was Martin Marty, who was the dean of the Chicago Divinity School. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elaine Pagels, uh, Karen, right. Fantastic. Arms- Karen Armstrong, mm-hmm. who was a brilliant religion scholar, and mm-hmm. Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I, knew a few I, people. E- I emailed them Those all, all and said, top, will top. you be on my panel? And they said, sure. Yeah. And so, you know, then, of course, we got anybody we wanted. And mm-hmm. so we had this incredible panel. And we just started, and I was very, and always have been very pluralistic in my view because I wanted to learn about religion and wasn't just a faith. This mm-hmm. wasn't about religion. Have I mean, it was, it was about yeah. what? What is this? Mm-hmm. You know, why is this so important? Why is why are ninety five percent of the people in this world informed by religion or mm-hmm. moved in some way by religion? Mm-hmm. And um, after about a year, and, and the site was immediately successful, mm-hmm. and everybody was stunned. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, my God, how is this possible? Religion? Really? Right. right. Um, and I was just having the best time. Yeah, it and wasn't be- quite on Sally Quinn brand, was no, it? No, it yeah. was completely, and, and Ben didn't get it. Ben right. kept saying, Jesus, you know, we got all these guys coming into the house in robes and mm-hmm. <laughs> skirts, right. and right. what's going on here? And, um, you know, I, I, one my favorite moment was having lunch at the Four Seasons with Rabbi Steinsaltz, who was one of the, the most revered rabbis in, in Israel, with, you know, a skull cap and lots of long white hair mm-hmm. and a white beard and mm-hmm. his black outfit. And all of my friends at the Four Seasons Hotels are looking at me thinking, who is this? But I was meeting so many interesting people. But mm-hmm. the other thing was that I was learning so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just I just kept thinking this is a huge gap in my education and I think in everyone's education. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should – I mean – Learning the history of religion should be mandatory mm-hmm. in all schools because I if you're going to learn, it at Georgetown it is. Well, if you're going to if you're yeah. going to study history and you're going to study philosophy and you're going to study art and music, religion is so much a part of all right. of that. So, so you started this website, yeah, it, which was very early, which yeah. is two thousand what two thousand? Well, it was eleven years ago. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you, you you didn't think of starting it as a section of the post at the time. We did. You so, did. Yeah, you did. You had. So you, there was you, a re- there was a, a one page was, on Saturday that was called. Religion, right? Which so is we changed like, the name to On this. Faith. Yeah. Um, then I hired a, a 
a religion uh, columnist, Lisa mm-hmm. Miller, who was the religion editor mm-hmm. at Newsweek, who was fabulous. And we had a, t- you know, we had a team of about seven people, mm-hmm. and people were writing columns. And we, then we sort of got rid of the panel idea because mm-hmm. uh, people just didn't want to have to write on a regular basis. And so we started various columns and people writing in and getting people, and it was just fascinating. And then I, I was doing a column for the Post about religion as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. and. Um, and that that went on very well for about six or seven years, mm-hmm. and then the post started losing money, and that was right before they decided to sell. And but you know what came, what got cu- cut first was religion, and right. so suddenly I lost my budget, and I just didn't have anybody. I mean, I lost my editor and my columnist. Sure, and then that. the website. Now explain what happened. You you had the website. So I had the website, and I spun it off with a a, a group that Allen and Company basically had suggested this to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a, a young group uh, who had started this uh, business called Faith Street. Mm-hmm. So I spun it off and we partnered with Faith Street and they were going to make money on their business side and we were going to do the content. And they just couldn't raise the money for it. So mm-hmm. I was then, um, we sold it to this group in Austin, Texas, who changed the name of their site to On Faith. Um, and we've been struggling a little bit because I think that the, um, the original premise uh, just didn't work now. So we are trying to refigure this and make it into an app and and have more sort of daily thoughts. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that the whole idea of religion and spirituality has changed enormously. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's really interesting because there are so many, I mean, the majority of people in this country are religious. Right. And yet, not one single religion site has ever made it. Right. So, what is it? What so, is that? And, and nobody. There are a lot. Now, listen. There are actually are religion apps like biblical apps that do right. very well. Yes, and that's sell right. very well. That's right. It's usually citing and yes. annotating the Bible. Right. And exactly. Like that. And yeah. so, we're trying to figure out a religion app that will work. Right. Because why the is that? Do you think? I well, look. The you know the first one was BeliefNet, right. and that was really successful. Steve Waldman uh, right. founded that with Mark mm-hmm. Tauber, who's mm-hmm. now the, my publisher at, mm-hmm. at Harper One, and um, they um, and it, w- it and you know they got a lot of ink and mm-hmm. they did really well. And but what st- what was happening? Steve said because he once said to me, "You're breaking my heart because you're doing all the political and foreign policy stuff that mm-hmm. I wanted to do, but right. in order to make money you have and to. sell ads, we had to dumb it down." Mm-hmm. He said, "I ended up sort of publishing Red Book, you mm-hmm. know, right? Um, how to get your lover to, you know, be spiritual with you, that kind right. of thing." Yeah. And he finally couldn't deal with it anymore. And Rupert Murdoch was about to then start. Uh, he wanted to do a religion tel- mm-hmm. a television. Um, show and or television actually a network right religion network like the spirituality and yeah yeah, and and also the website and so he bought it from steve right uh and um then they decided they just didn't have the audience for it right and so um, why you tell you that is really interesting because online people are very act religious people are very active online i know it and this is what and you know then then um cnn had a religion website and Mm -hmm. that went out of business and uh, Huffington Post had a religion they website. Did. I mean, they still do stuff, but but Paul Rauschenbusch quit, and mm-hmm. um, so that sort of didn't work. And um, it's just I can't figure it out. I mean, mm-hmm. the one thing that I think well, actually, I was reading a piece in Vogue magazine about Oprah, who mm-hmm. you know when she started, she's own, really, she's spiritual. Yeah. She wanted her website to be spiritual, mm-hmm. all spiritual all the time. She mm-hmm. was saying this in the, in the mm-hmm. article and that she realized that that's not what people wanted, mm-hmm. that people want a snack. Right. And so she ended up doing just this one thing once a week called Super Soul Sunday mm-hmm. because she just, the whole religion thing that she wanted to do, the whole website or the whole network just mm-hmm. didn't work. Right. Um, so, I, what so you I kept think, struggling with the. I remember so, seeing, I seeing you, and you were being very frustrated. You're being very frustrated. frustrated yeah, right. and and I, I just can't believe that we that there's not a way that you can get people online and on the internet to connect in some mm-hmm. way. Um, I think w- one of the problems is that I think that people are turned off by um, organized religion, mm-hmm. and I think that. You now we have about 
25, 30 percent, over almost a third of the people in this country will identify themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That Mm -hmm. means if you say, what's your religion, they'll say none. Mm -hmm. But they're spiritual. Mm -hmm. Um, But they don't go to church. They don't, uh, they're not involved. They're in congregations um, and and they're bored by it. It Mm -hmm. doesn't speak to them. Going to these services and listening to the same prayers and the minister and the choir and all that mm-hmm. just doesn't work for them. And they're looking for some other kind of spirituality or some connection to the transcendent or the, to, to the divine. Mm-hmm. And um, in a way, this is, this is what my, my book is aimed at those right. people right. because, because I am not, I'm not part of any organized religion at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, I, you know, I, w- I do go to services at different, mm-hmm. different, I'll go to synagogue, I'll go to Yom Kippur this mm-hmm. week, you know, I do go to mosques, I, I do go to various churches from time to time, um, just because I'm interested in it, and that's part of what I do. Um, but it's not something I do on a regular basis because mm-hmm. I don't get what I need from it. Right. So and talk about why you did this book. Because so, some people, that they'll, they'll say, not necessarily of your book, but that people like to do their sort of soft spirituality or, or, or this, you know, this mixture of the thing. And you're calling it finding magic. And I remember we talked about it at, the, we yeah. at Steve Case's house, actually. Um, explain what you're trying to do with this book. And uh, you're, you're, you're trying to, you, there is a lot of stuff like that on the web because you could add in meditation, you could yeah. add in um, astrology, yeah. add in all kinds. There's there's chi, uh, chi uh, whatever, uh, what's it called? Uh, yeah, tai Chi. The, not Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the, that is a kind of a religion. Yeah. But it's the throwing of the, I'm blanking. There's so many apps oh, and I things. Ching. I Ching yeah. and mm-hmm. stuff like that. There's so much going on online and also offline about this kind of stuff. What were you looking for in this book? Why? What was the idea of it? Well, the idea was, um, well, when I first got signed a contract, it was about it was to write about how I, as an atheist, mm-hmm. started a religion website. That's right. what the book was right. going to be right. about. Right, right, right. And just at that point, Ben, my husband, had been diagnosed with dementia. In the last mm-hmm. two years of his life, he really was going downhill. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't write anything. Um, I mean, I just didn't know what to write, and I didn't have anything, and I had nothing in me to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after da- Ben died, about two or three weeks later, I sort of thought, I've got to write this. I've mm-hmm. got to get this out, which is not what I was supposed to be writing. Right. Uh, but I, I wrote about his decline and his death. Mm-hmm. And and so then, and I thought, well, maybe that's how I'll begin the book. But then I thought, no, Ben is so vital and so full of Absolutely. energy and everything. I don't want to start I don't want to introduce him as this demented old man. Right. Although I have to say I ran into him at a Washington Post thing upstairs, and it was a room full of people, and he was still the most vibrant person there. And well, obviously he was struggling. until he died. I mean, right. he was struggling, and he lost his memory, but mm-hmm. he, had, he never lost his bendness. Yeah, you know? no. He was he always was still just, had his like, personality. and Still has until it. The, and, and he always knew me, even right. at the very end. Mm-hmm. But um, And so then I started backing up and thinking, okay, well, how— I was an atheist, and I suddenly realized that I was not an atheist, but I didn't mm-hmm. know what I was. Mm-hmm. And so I started finding these stories that had uh, episodes in my life that had some meaning mm-hmm. or that w- illuminated something or that were moments of transcendent or moments of magic. The mm-hmm. book is divided into three sections, magic, mystery, and meaning. And mm-hmm. part of it was my my sort of beginning to understand about magic the middle part is the mystery of God and the mystery of religion and mm-hmm. spirituality. And then the, the last part is about what really gives my life meaning. And mm-hmm. so as I was writing these stories, it was kind of like breadcrumbs through the forest. Each mm-hmm. one sort of led on. Each one sort of had a little epiphany at the end um, or some little enlightenment, moment of enlightenment. And that led the way all the way through the book until I came to... The end of the book is a year after Ben died when I had a yard site for him, which mm-hmm. is like a Jewish ceremony is mm-hmm. the end of the year, first year of mourning. Uh, but so ultimately the book is about what is what gives your life meaning. And one of the things that became clear to me during that time, because Quinn was sick for so long and I took care of him and I had to quit my job. And then my mother had a stroke and she was um, partially paralyzed and had um, some cognitive issues and my father got sick and I was with both my parents when they died mm-hmm. and um, and I, I was with Ben when he died and um, and so I began to try to figure out what what 
made me happy, what gave me meaning. And so I was looking for a different kind of spirituality. I still hadn't been able to identify what I was. Right, right. Um, But I began to realize that what gave my life meaning was taking care of the people that I loved Mm -hmm. and taking care of Ben at the end, even though it was horrible, um, was probably the happiest time we ever had in our marriage together. Wow, all right. And it was certainly the most spiritual experience I ever had. And so... Ultimately, I came to the conclusion that, you know, the meaning of my life was taking care of other people and, and, and love. Mm-hmm. Ben was um, in a study at Harvard called the Grant Study, and mm-hmm. this guy, George Valiant, studied these guys, Jack Kennedy and Ben, mm-hmm. all the way from Harvard until they died. There mm-hmm. are few left. And he wrote a book about it and said, after studying these men all their lives for 80 years or whatever, that it all happiness came down to one thing, and that was love, full mm-hmm. stop. And so I then finally had to sort of decide what I was. I'm, you know, I believe in a, I don't believe that there's a personal God, but mm-hmm. I do believe in a creator. And, um, and I can't believe that there was nothing and then there was something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I probably call myself a transcendentalist. So talk about the book specifically, and I'd love to talk about how you look at religion. And I'm because it's a tech show online because there's again it's so vibrant, like where where things are going with religion and how because you know all these religious groups, whether they're malevolent ones like ISIS, communicate online. They people get their messages out online. There's all kinds of things happening on Facebook and other places. But let's talk about the book. So you had you said it was split into three parts. Um, magic, magic, mystery, and meaning. You got, you've gotten a lot of press about the hex thing. Why is that? Explain the hex thing. Again, it's well, kind of silly, I think. Well, the thing about it is that I, um, I'm i from Savannah, Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, and my family is from Statesboro, which is a little tiny town. Mm-hmm. It's a deep south. Right. And part of the um, culture of the deep south is this whole, you know, midnight in the garden of good, good, good and evil. Yeah. You know, it's all about magic and cult and voodoo and and hexes. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't go to New Orleans. Every other shop has voodoo dolls and hexes and all that kind of thing. And my family were Presbyterian Scots who had Mm -hmm. come down from North Carolina and built this big plantation house. And um, my Aunt Ruth was the, you know, nice Presbyterian lady who played the organ in church every Sunday. But what they really believed and practiced was the occult mm-hmm. and the Scottish stones and time travel. And they believed in all this, the psychic phenomena mm-hmm. and ghosts and, you know, the tarot and astrology and palmistry mm-hmm. and voodoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I learned voodoo. My mother actually put a hex on somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I this was all part of what I call embedded religion. Right. You right. know, it's it's what you grow up with. And yeah, I was telling you about my grandmother. Yeah, she had the so malocchio you, you, uh, and yeah. the oil and the water so, and the knives yeah, and under beds. And, 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 you know, the the word hex is a, is more used in the South. I think, mm-hmm. um, and I maybe should have been a little more explicit in the book <laughs> about hex because it can also be a spell right. or it can be a wish or a prayer. Mm-hmm. And you can either put a good hex or a good spell on somebody or a bad one. Right. And so, um, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, mm-hmm. all of my friends knew this about me because right. I read palms and I read tarot cards. And mm-hmm. I, I've i always gone to astrology. I have one wonderful astrologer I go to. Mm-hmm. And um, and so they all thought it was funny. Everybody called me witchy. And, some, mm-hmm. and so I do have some psychic abilities, mm-hmm. as did my mother and her sister and my aunt and my sister. Not all the time, but mm-hmm. every once in a while. And... Um, so that was just part of who I was. And um, and so when I talked about hexes, people laughed. Ben thought it was hysterically funny. Mm-hmm. And Barry Goldwater, who was a friend of my parents, mm-hmm. would sit in my parents' living. He lived with my parents for a while. And, and Barry and Daddy knew about Mother and me mm-hmm. and our family. And mm-hmm. Ben would go over there and they'd say, you don't want to cross these Quinn girls. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, they got power. So there were three times when I put, quote, a hex on somebody or I, I decided I'm that people had hurt me in some way. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted was for them to feel the same hurt I mm-hmm. had felt. Mm-hmm. So I put a hex on them, you know. I, I wished them not well. Right. And um, I mean... You wrote about it. Well, yeah, and and people put, I mean, people, you can call it what you want to call right. it, but, you know, people might wish Donald Trump ill. Right. Is that a hex? I mm-hmm. don't know. I mean, right. it depends on what you want to call it. You right, know? right. Um, and well, so, people tend to want to make, but you remember with Nancy Reagan, she got yeah. pilloried for right, that. Right. or The astrology thing. The astrology thing. thing yeah. and, well, I mean, she did sort of 
get Air Force One to take off when right. her astrologer told her to take Right, that's true. Yes, you don't want to like take it too <laughs> right. far. But a lot of people, I, but I find I, a I lot mean, of, I, you know, is thriving online. All this stuff is thriving. All I can tell you about Nancy Reagan mm-hmm. is I was asked to do an, uh, a piece defending her because mm-hmm. my, all of my friends knew that I went to an astrologer right. and I said no because I don't want to get killed either. Right. Uh, but, you know, her husband had been shot and mm-hmm. she was terrified. Right. Um, and so she turned to astrology and, mm-hmm. you know, so... Other people turn to other things. Right. Um, but in any case, I did three times wish somebody ill. Mm-hmm. I certainly did not wish them dead. But mm-hmm. in fact, three times these people died. Right. And uh, my brother, who is a religious— Well, everyone does die. Yes, <laughs> I know. This is true. But my, my brother is a Ph.D. in religion at the University of Chicago and mm-hmm. studied under Mircea oh, um, Eliade, who was one of the great religion scholars. And he said—I I was telling him about this, and he said, you know, you got to knock this off because it comes <laughs> back at you three times. And even though you—and I said, this is ridiculous. I'm, right. You know, I'm not— you know, I don't have any. And Ben thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. And he said, I don't care. Just don't do it. You're putting bad energy out no oh, matter yeah, what true. you think. That's and true. so, uh, but Ben, you know, if he got pissed off at somebody, he'd say, go get him, Sal. Oh, <laughs> go get my hack sack. So, <laughs> right, so, so it's so funny. But in any case, yeah. um, you know, people after after it. the third time. I literally I, had four people saying, you know, she texts people. I was like, so? Like, of course, well, I'm like, they're, they're, I'm the wrong audience. I'm like, good for her. Sounds well, good to me. I, but the point is that after the third, after my brother really got after me, this is 35 <laughs> years ago, I thought, this is not a good idea. So I just Stop stopped texting. it. And now I only wish people well. Oh, well, good. And, I, and you can't yes. know the number of friends of mine who have said, you must put a hex on Donald Trump. And yeah. I said, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. If you want to do it, if you want to yeah. wish him ill, then go ahead. But yeah. not me. I only wish everybody well, well. Because first of all, it doesn't make me feel good. And yeah. it sort of feels like when you wish somebody ill, you're just putting out bad Probably, energy. Probably, yes. Yeah. I know, and I want to I want to bring good, good energy back to myself. You can do you can myself. whoever you want, Sally. I yeah. don't don't let people judge. Right, no, don't I'm be not judging. Doing it anymore. I live in San Francisco, so there's texting right. going on almost continually. Um so the, the, let's talk about the idea of 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 uh, of what you're trying. So you're trying do you find and again I'm going to turn it to tech that people sort of live online, they 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 obsess with their phones, they're always doing something on it. What, how, where do you find spirituality in this? Because I think a lot of people are feeling a little lost with a lot of a lot of what's going on. Well, I I think I I don't think I've ever been uh, felt um, how lost people feel now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I do think that it that people are searching for meaning mm-hmm. in in a really serious way. Right, and which is one not, of the sections of your book, and that which is what my book's about, and they're not finding it in the churches, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they've got to find it somewhere else. They're certainly not finding it online. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can go online, and you can go to these spiritual websites, and you can go to these meditation websites. But it seems to me that um, I find, I mean, and I this summer I was at uh, the Martha's Vineyard, I find that turning off mm-hmm. my cell. Right. I mean, this doesn't mean that I'm not dependent on it because mm-hmm. I couldn't function without my computer. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that's how I get my information mm-hmm. and how I communicate with people. Mm-hmm. But um, but I'm not obsessed with it. And right. I don't, um, you know, I'm not, I have friends who just say, okay, I'm going to go off line for three days because I can't stand it. I, I don't do that because I'm not obsessed with mm-hmm. it. But I just find that um, there is something to be said for meditation, and I do meditate every day for about ten minutes or fifteen mm-hmm. minutes, sometimes longer. Um, I have a labyrinth, yes, which I is know, yeah. you walk the labyrinth, and sometimes I'll spend a couple of hours meditating. A lot of tech people have labyrinths, yeah, which is interesting. But, but I think that 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 having labyrinths is is hugely important, and I mean not having labyrinths, but being able to meditate, but spending time alone, you know, being alone and so also spending time with your friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in ritual, which I mm-hmm. never was before. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I always thought it was kind of sentimental and mawkish. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just a total nut about rituals. And one of my favorite rituals is dinner, mm-hmm. of having dinner. And when Ben, when Quinn was growing up, Ben and the three of us would have dinner every night in the dining room with candles. Mm-hmm. And we would sit and we would talk. Mm-hmm. And no phones, mm-hmm. no, you know. And it drives me crazy when you're at a dinner party or mm-hmm. you're out with somebody at a restaurant and they're mm-hmm. sitting there on their phone. I mm-hmm. mean, w- 
I think that the big problem is not it's not what's wrong with the internet or mm-hmm. what's wrong with your phones. Right. It's it's the fact that that's only one part of your life, right? And that it does get in the way of communicating with other people, right? And so you know, at my dinners, I love it when there are lots of wine and good food and candles and everybody's sort of sitting around and having a conversation and talking about anything silly or whatever else it is. A lot of times about things that you've seen on your website, you right? Know? Right. But still, being able to be alone and, and have that private time without having the interference of some, you know, s- some sort of uh, device. Right. Let me shift into that, though. There's so much of politics. You would cover politics forever has shifted that way. Like I was thinking all the Charlottesville responses from everybody were online. Yeah. Obviously, Trump right. made a mess of it mm-hmm. with all his tweets and things like that. You have an administration sort of in this 24-hour news cycle, but it's it's an internet cycle, really. Mm-hmm. It's not just a cable news cycle. It's right. something much different. It's taken a leap. How do you look at that, and what do you imagine um, it does to to politics now? Because, I want, because it does create the coarsening of society, because one of the things you're talking about is finding meaning, and it, it creates a very coarse society, I think, and, and that's why people are shifting towards what else is there. Well, I think... Mainly, it's thoughtlessness. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you can't in 140 characters say mm-hmm. anything really thoughtful. You right. can say something clever, mm-hmm. or facile, mm-hmm. or funny, mm-hmm. or maybe interesting. Um, but I think I, you know, and a lot of people are going much toward long-form journalism. Yeah. On, I mean, Playbook, for instance, has weekend reads, and they're long. Yeah, they're great. Wrong reads of interesting things, and I find that I read two or three of them just because I I want something. I want to be able to have something. Certainly, I can the Post used to be that way. Think about yeah, and um, and so I I mean I think it is a coarsening because. You know, it's it's so anti-intellectual, mm-hmm. and um, and I it's also I find that so many so many people in the country, so many voters seem to be uninformed mm-hmm. and to not care about being uninformed. Right. If you say, "Did you know about our position on NATO?" Mm-hmm. They don't know and they don't care. Right. You know, what about the Paris Accords? They don't know and they don't care. Mm-hmm. And. And so I think that people don't read enough and they don't have time to read or they don't take the time to read and mm-hmm. to be informed. And so what they get are these tweets. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, I can understand why Donald Trump wants to tweet because he can go over the head of the media and he mm-hmm. can reach his followers. But it's there's nothing enlightening right. uh, about it or informative. So or what happens to politics? I have someone who's been watching politics your whole career. Um, I think... Um, you know, I really think that that we have reached the depths mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way. I think that politics has hit the bottom mm-hmm. in this last election and with this administration. And I think there's nowhere to go but up. Mm-hmm. I happen to be really optimistic. Wow. Yeah, I can and see that. And I, I feel that um, that people are sort of because everybody's floundering and le- everybody's looking for answers and looking for meaning and they're not getting it in the tweets mm-hmm. and they're not getting it in the Charlottesville, mm-hmm. um, you know, demonstrations. Um, and they're sort of thinking, you know, when you look at DACA and, and the Dreamers, they're thinking, mm-hmm. these are real people who are mm-hmm. doing good things and, mm-hmm. and why, you know, we need to think about this. What's mm-hmm. happening here? We mm-hmm. need to think about Paris. Mm-hmm. We, we, we really need to think about who we are as a people, mm-hmm. as a nation. And, um, you know, I mean, Hillary is famous for her line about a basket of deplorables. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, people who are not Trump supporters are denigrating of tr- Trump supporters, and some mm-hmm. of them are white supremacists mm-hmm. and, and, and racists. Mm-hmm. It's, they're certainly true. Um, but I, I really believe that... Um, that the message should be keep America great, mm-hmm. not make America great again, mm-hmm. because America's never stopped being great. And I just think that that everyone has uh, certainly Trump has appealed to the the lowest mm-hmm. and the and the the the, the least of so our question. Our Why do evangelicals stick with him? Um, well, it's very cynical, mm-hmm. very very cynical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, if you ask some of them, they'll say, well, you know, Supreme Court, anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. But I don't, 
think that that's all true. I, I mean, and I think questions to ask a Trump supporter is, would you, um, would you, do you approve of the way he behaves? Would you behave the same way he does mm-hmm. and talk about the things? He, is this what you would teach your children? Mm-hmm. And what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I think that they would all be very uncomfortable with those questions. Right. Um, but I do think that there is a large, and by the way, the evangelical, the word evangelical is meaningless because right. there are so many different I mean there are a yeah. lot of liberal and left wing apparently like Republicans as it turns out yes, there's exactly. lots of different so, Republicans and a lot of evangelicals don't go to church right um, they call themselves Christians but sometimes they don't lead very Christian lives mm-hmm. and there is this whole I think very disturbing um, aspect of some evangelicals it's called the prosperity gospel mm-hmm. and I think if Trump had a religion it would be the prosperity gospel which is that God wants you to be rich mm-hmm. and he wants you to prosper and if you are prosper and you're rich then God must favor you and therefore right. oh, look at Donald Trump either. is rich right. and he's made all this money and he's a you know and and he's this uh, big businessman and therefore God must favor him mm-hmm. and I want to be rich Right. And so this I need to I follow to. Trump and do what he does and do what he says. Then I'm going to be rich, which right. will mean that God will love me. Different kind of religion. Yes. All right. I want to finish up on two quick things. Handmaid's Tale won uh, uh, all kinds of awards last night at the Emmys and deserve it. It's a wonderful thing about a religious future that's disturbing. Right. I want you to talk a tiny bit about that. like that, And it's, it's had a lot of resonance among viewers because it's super disturbing. And then secondly, what do you think that – give me like two or three things – people should think about if they're thinking about spirituality. So let me start with Hammy just briefly. Well, I, you know, the, I, it was wonderful when it came out. I haven't, I haven't watched it on mm-hmm. television, but I, I do, um, I did read it uh, when it came out. And um, I, I think it's like a little bit like George Orwell's mm-hmm. 1984. I Are think we? It's, We're it's, always waiting for it's, it. A, it's, a, it's, it's a warning more mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's sort of like this is what it could be if mm-hmm. we don't pull ourselves back. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of these books and these movies are really valuable in the sense that people can say, oh, my God, you know, where are our values? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that the American people right now are people are, are of value. They do have values and they do have morals and ethics. And I think that someone needs to appeal to that mm-hmm. instead of their worst instincts. Um, so I think that in, in, in that sense, I think the, the Handmaid's Tale has, has served has done a great service. It's a perfect timing. Yeah. So, what do you think? What are the key things people think about when they're thinking about spirituality? Because you were someone I would not have thought would become spiritual or would be talking about spirituality. Um, not that I'm surprised necessarily, because I think people, I know lots of people who, who are more spiritual than I realize. But what do you think the key things? If you're if you're thinking about that, if you're drift, or what do you think the things that are critical to think about? Well, or the I messages think, you're trying. You know, to... one of the things I say in my book, because you know there are all these books about happiness and the right. happiness project, and you know, you and need, Ariana says we need a nap. We yeah. need a nap, right. and Ivanka says you need to have a massage once a week and all <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but I think that it's it's. Uh, you know, and and you know these books are really written for the one percent. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you be happy? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that people go about it the wrong way. They 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 are seeking happiness. They're they're seeking. You you can't find meaning by seeking happiness. Mm-hmm. You have to seek meaning in order to find happiness. Mm-hmm. And so I think that looking for meaning and the things that make you feel good and usually it has to do with loving and taking care of other people Mm -hmm. and i think you know i look at these people who are aids workers and and you know rescue workers and people in africa helping the you know the starving and i just admire them so much Mm -hmm. um and these people have got real meaning in their lives and i felt that you know being able to take care of quinn my son and my mother and my father and then ben during that time just gave uh, it, it was the happiest in an odd way, time mm-hmm. of my life because I really had meaning in my life. And, you know, I have a wonderful son now who's got a fiancé and a little daughter. And mm-hmm. and, um, and so I think that people, if, I think people just get too involved in their themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like me, me, me. I mean, this is an old story, but mm-hmm. I just think that you know, if you reach out and do things for other people, it just makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that that's what spirituality is. I mean, it's you know, Jesus talks about the least of these, but you look at the people who are suffering. And, and you know, I look at people around the world who are so religious, and it's really the most religious people are the, the poorest people mm-hmm. and the most downtrodden people and the people who are having the most terrible lives. And you think, how could they possibly be happy? Mm-hmm. But they find happiness in little ways, and mm-hmm. it's, it's what my book is about, Finding Magic, mm-hmm. is that people don't stop and think about the things in everyday mm-hmm. life that, that are magical, right. that give them magic. I right. mean, I was in my kitchen the other day, and, and my son's girlfriend and her child and the, their dog moved in mm-hmm. on Labor Day weekend. I was in the kitchen Sunday morning, and Chloe, at age five, came running through the kitchen my kitchen with a mask on, and she ran around the, the island a couple of times with Teddy Roosevelt, the dog, mm-hmm. and barking, and then went hiding and then dashed out. And I just sort of thought, that's magic, mm-hmm. you know? It was mm-hmm. just this wonderful little moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think that we don't concentrate enough on the things. Everybody is so stressed out all mm-hmm. the time about everything. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is so trite, but gratitude really works. If oh, you you think, need to move to San Francisco. What? You need to move to San Francisco. Well, no, but I mean, if you think about it for a minute, if you think yeah. about, you know, when I start feeling sorry for myself, I I used to think when I went into Children's Hospital and Quinn was on the verge of death half the time, mm-hmm. and I would walk into the hospital and I would feel really sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. And then I would see these children yeah. in wheelchairs with shaved heads on IVs, and they were dying of cancer. And I would sort of get annoyed because I thought, I want to feel sorry for myself. Right. But um, I couldn't because these children were dying. Yep. And really Quinn didn't die. Yeah. And it was sort of like, you know, the, you feel sorry for the, yourself because you have no shoes. And then you see the man who has no feet. Yeah, right. So I'm, I'm, I feel like um, that if you, if, you, if you think about, I mean, I do sound Pollyannish. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't this way before. No, you were not. I really was not. Yeah. But if you do think about what's good in your life instead mm-hmm. of what's bad, if you stop saying, poor me, poor me, and start thinking, lucky me, I have this or that, I have mm-hmm. that, or, you know, I mean, people will say to me, oh, you have everything, you know, you have the charmed life, you have mm-hmm. this, and I think, yeah, they're looking at me, and they're, and, and you, you know, here I have had Quinn, who mm-hmm. was is sick, he's 35 now, um, mm-hmm. he's learning disabled, mm-hmm. um, and we went through a horrible time with him and with my mother and father and Ben. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily what it on paper looks like a charmed life. Right. But the fact is that I've gotten so much out of it mm-hmm. that it feels charmed to me in it a way. It is charmed. It is charmed, Sally Quinn. You do have that. Um, so what's next? Last thing. Um, I'm writing a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a love story. It has nothing to do with Washington or politics, okay. I'm happy to say. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to do a Washington memoir. This is a yeah, spiritual I think you have to. I'm going to do a Washington memoir, but I just needed, uh, I was really sick of myself after this book. Right. And I'm going to even be more sick of myself after this book tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I needed. Uh, I need a, a palate cleanser. So right. this novel will be a novella. Good. And I've had it in mind for about three years, and then and then after that, the um, memoir. I'll do another memoir. You got a lot to say, about and I, that. you know, I've got a lot of, um, you know, I do stuff for the Washington Post live, and mm-hmm. you know, I do panels, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm doing something, a couple of things at the Harvard Kennedy School, mm-hmm. and you know, just things come along, and um, they're re- releasing Ben's book, A Good Life, in November, a Simon book. and November, Simon Schuster, and Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein have written the forward, and I've written the afterward, and. And then there's a documentary that my son, Quinn Bradley, is co-producer, a HBO documentary about Ben coming out oh, in wow. November. And then, uh, and then Steven Spielberg has directed this film, which is coming out in December, I uh, saw. about Pentagon Papers. And Tom Hanks is playing Ben. Yeah. And Meryl Streep is playing Catherine Graham. Yeah. And so there's, there's a lot to look forward Who's to. Who's playing you? Are you in it? No, we weren't together then. Oh, you weren't. No, that's we right. we got together in Watergate. Right. Which Watergate. Right. Oh, okay. This kind of, oh, before that was yeah. before that. That's mm-hmm. right. Oh, it's going to be mm-hmm. great. I just actually watched all the presidents been the other day, and it's, it's actually it's a holds fabulous. Up. It really holds up. holds up. It's fabulous. Holds movie. up. Yeah. Well, nothing was like Ben Bradley too, but you are also a legend yourself. Anyway, Sally, thanks for coming by. It was great talking to you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with investor Maha Ibrahim, Bears in the Streets author Lisa Dickey, and management experts Chris Keeney and John Danner, just to name a few. 
You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no BS interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and recently Code Commerce, which took place in New York recently. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. Thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. Hi, this is Dan Fromer, Editor-in-Chief at Recode. I'm here to tell you about a new project we just launched, the Recode 100, and ask for your help. We're trying to make a list of the people in the tech and business world who made the biggest impact this year, the winners of 2017. Executives, entrepreneurs, movement starters, designers, whoever, primarily in tech media and commerce, but also some of our new focus areas like transportation, policy, and robotics. We'll unveil the full list and throw a big party for the winners later this year, but for now, we need your nominations. So if you know someone who kicked ass this year or is a rising star in their field, head to recode.net slash submit by Monday, October 16th to nominate someone and for more information. That's recode.net slash submit.